Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, Managing Director and Founder of FW. I began life as a journalist, held senior roles in newspapers, edited Australia's largest magazine, and in 2018, I launched my own business. FW is dedicated to helping women navigate their working lives. But I've made my share of mistakes, especially as a leader. In this series, I go in search of answers to often complex leadership challenges. I explore the latest thinking on how to be a great leader and return to the tried and true methods to better understand what works and in what situations. How many of you grew up in a family where arguing about news, sport or politics was part of life? This was definitely my experience and I think it helped me manage competitive environments. But I've never really been that good at winning the argument. In this episode, we explore how to get better at it. My guest is Equality Australia CEO Anna Brown, whose fingerprints are on nearly every major reform for LGBTIQ plus people in recent years. Anna Brown, welcome to the FW Leadership Series. I want to start with what you're working on at the moment. Well, it's actually a really busy time for us. I mean, not only are we leading up to Mardi Gras, of course, which is the fun stuff, but there's some major opportunities, not only in New South Wales, where we've got, hopefully, on the cusp of uh, the New South Wales government introducing a bill to ban conversion, so-called therapy, but also a major debate uh, about to happen in the federal sphere on that old issue of religious discrimination. So the fact that both students and teachers in religious schools are vulnerable to discrimination at the moment, and whether it's on the basis of sexual orientation or whether you're you know, a trans student or indeed, in fact, um, topical to this discussion, um, discrimination that women face on the basis of, sort of religious belief as well. Where is that at then specifically? Because... It seems to me that it is working, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that the current government is working through the quite complex and difficult issues in a mature way. Yeah, I've, I mean, we've got an Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, who's he's a man of faith, so he's, a, he's of Jewish faith, but he's also been you know, a long-time supporter of LGBTIQ plus communities and a big, strong advocate for human rights. So I think we're in good hands there, and they did give the issue of looking at schools and education more broadly and the exemptions that allow discrimination, the ones we're trying to get rid of in the Sex Discrimination Act that affect women and LGBTIQ plus people. He gave that issue to the Australian Law Reform Commission to inquire into. Then, unfortunately, that report has been delayed. Um, It was finally given to government at the end of last year and we're due to see that report tabled and Parliament's about to resume. And, you know, I would expect the government to release its response close to around the same time they've had a chance to look at it and think about what they might want to do. Of course, we've been saying for a while, this is pretty simple. You just remove the exemptions in the Act that allow the discrimination to happen. And then uh, the government's also grappling with its other commitment, which was to protect people of faith from discrimination as well. And that's, of course, where we had a huge debate last term of parliament when the Morrison government sought to introduce a bill that protected people of faith. But unfortunately, it also uh, went backward, took away rights and slid backwards for other vulnerable groups uh, such as LGBTIQ plus people, women, people with disability and others. The two key stakeholders in this who are both looking for reform, is, it, 
and this is not what this podcast is supposed to be about, Anna, but I can't help but ask you this question. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't be able to <laughs> um, Are they close? Are they getting closer to, to actually a form of words that works for both? Yeah, well, what's frustrating is that I feel like a lot of us have been saying the same thing for a long time. I think there's a refusal with some of the uh, more conservative religious organisations to engage with the reality of the existence of our communities and the fact that lesbian gay, bisexual, transgender people are within communities of faith. They believe in their God or Buddha or um, whatever denomination they they may be a part of. And then that's actually missed in some of it. So when we talk to people of faith, they don't want to have to choose. They're like, why would I, you know, I want to, I want to be able to send my child to a religious school because that's my religion. It shouldn't be a forcing someone to choose between two important important parts of who they are. And it's the same issue really with conversion practices in a way because the religious settings, unfortunately, that's really fertile ground for where these practices take place, but also um, in some quasi-medical or, or health settings. And people are told that they have to not be gay or not be trans or um, that these feelings make them broken. And for many uh, young people in particular, they've grown up in a religious community that they feel a part of and they don't they don't want to have to, again, tear out this part of themselves in order to be who they are. It's just profoundly damaging and really quite tragic in many cases. I mean, so we, we all know the statistics. So we've got a way to go. Yeah. How did you become CEO of Equality Australia? Well, after that, other campaign, the national vote that we had uh, six years ago on marriage equality. I was part of that campaign, one of the co-chairs, and it was a wonderful moment of affirmation for our communities when Australia said yes. But there was, I was very conscious that there was more to do and that I'd been helping, you know, trans kids access medical care and older gay men with criminal convictions for, you know, homosexual offences from years ago. So there's so many more issues that I knew needed to be dealt with and I was really worried that the goodwill and all of this, even the the legal entity and the infrastructure, the campaigning infrastructure we'd built through, yes, would all of that would just slip away unless we harnessed it. And so I created from that from that yes campaign entity that we built, we created Equality Australia to be an ongoing voice for LGBTQ plus people in Australia. And we didn't have an organisation for our communities until then. We had a really wonderful and effective HIV AIDS uh, response and sector and lots of great community organisations, but there was um, no organisation um, really doing that that human rights and law reform work. And I've got a background as a lawyer, so I've been working in that space for a while as well as politics and other things. So it was, you know, really seizing that opportunity to provide something that I knew was very much needed for our community. How big a leap was it for you in your career um, life to go from that activism piece into, you know, creating an entity that didn't exist, building an entity that didn't exist and obviously working to get that funded and then building a team around you? Well, effectively, it was like a startup again and we were dealing with a lot of complacency, people that thought, oh, you know, we had the big vote, it's all done. That was the biggest issue that I found. Oh, what are the other issues? I don't know. And when the religious discrimination bill came along, I thought, oh my, I was so, I felt, you know, it was a horrible 
challenge or threat to be facing as a community. But I was so glad that we'd, you know, stayed the course and built this organisation because it was so important that we we were there to fight this this damaging legislation. Uh, for me, that was, you know, going from, you know, we had about 80 full-time staff during marriage equality to one <laughs> at the beginning. And I'm sure you can relate to that with setting up future women. But, you know, slowly but surely we're up to... 12 people now and we've, you know, got some of that, I would put it in the boring but important sort of operational infrastructure that's so vital to to make sure that you're creating a sustainable organisation that looks after its people and we build the capacity of the LGBTI community but also employ allies as well because they're really important to our success. This is a bit unfair but what do you consider your biggest achievements? Well, for me, I probably go back to um, when I was helping some older gay men who were living with the shame and stigma and practical consequences of having a criminal conviction for sort of a homosexual-related offence and being able to impact their lives in the way that I could, having a scheme introduced in Victoria that allowed them to have those offences removed from their records and the sorts of things they'd say to me was, you know... I've been living with a sword hanging over my head for my entire life or under a cloud and and now, you know, I can just feel like I'm no longer a criminal in the eyes of the law. And one man I helped in New South Wales, it was literally two weeks before he died that he received a, a letter saying that the offences were no longer on his record and he said that that gave him great peace. How many people do you think were in that in that space? It's hard to say because in though, I mean, we're talking about a depth of sort of shame and stigma that people felt that was really quite, you know, profound. Mm. And even talking to my friends who are older gay men, they said, people just don't, don't talk about it. So for people to come forward itself was a really big thing. We had men we were helping that were married and, you know, were caught up when they were in their 20s. Sometimes they were sort of what the Americans would say, entrapped by police. And they'd been keeping this secret from their families, dreading that it would somehow surface one day in a in an employment check or a travel process or when they were even, you know, applying to volunteer for an organisation. So it's just not knowing when it's going to come up. So it, there are people out there still living with the um, legacy of the, these laws that were on our books for far longer than they should have been. I want to explore how you approach a controversial argument because you've been on the forefront of having these difficult conversations and and changing people's perceptions, you know, the the story you just told. It would have seemed perfectly feasible for people in that era for that to have taken place. How do you approach having these discussions when the issue is, you know, so emotionally fraught? Mm. Well, I've learned, I mean, as a lawyer and someone who's very driven by sort of facts and arguments and I've learned not to, <laughs> that you don't win, you actually don't win arguments with really strong legal or policy or evidentiary bases. Like that's part of the picture. It's, it's almost an essential prerequisite to making the case. But persuasion and building support and 
winning a campaign and winning hearts and minds is something that so much more about someone's humanity and reaching someone at an emotional level. And that's really was the ingredients for success for the marriage equality campaign. It was, we, we were really determined to make sure it was a campaign not about a what, but a who, you know, who, who are you voting yes for? It's your workmate, it's your, your brother, it's your, you know, your aunt who's got a same-sex partner who you love. And it was putting a human face to what, you know, the issue, um, it, it's that human face and seeing the humanity in people that really, I think, makes the penny drop. Is it fair to say that is specific to the sorts of arguments you've been having? Are there arguments where the facts are good enough? Well, I think one example, in court, I don't think you're going to win an argument in court with a good story. It needs to be a strong legal argument. And of course, there's performance and skill involved in crafting that legal argument in a way that's compelling from, you know, a non-legal perspective, but it's primarily about your legal argument. And so, you know, I've seen, the, I've worked with senior counsel that have been so incredibly impressive at, at crafting those arguments and putting them strongly. Um, so that's, that's an environment where I don't think, you know, we're talking about changing hearts and minds in a way using people's stories. But in our campaigning work, in political debates, I think it really is about, and I think there's research, I read this somewhere, that facts are one thing, but people will come to a debate with a mindset and that's influenced far more by emotion. But the other piece is values. And that was the other thing we did during marriage equalities. We did focus group research. We looked at what spoke to Australians and how they were persuaded. And ultimately, we, we made sure that we were using messaging that resonated and, you know, was attached to values that really resonated with Australians. And those values were equality and fairness. Interestingly, love and commitment were ranked highly, but they weren't up the top. And at the end of the day, for most Australians, that fairness concept is something that I think it runs deep for us. And even when we sent, we sent people to Taiwan the year after, the plebiscite or postal survey and the marriage equality legislation going through because Taiwan was having a debate as well. And interestingly, those values don't resonate with people in Taiwan. It's other like commitment, family, doing the right thing. It's, it's always culturally specific. Yeah, in Australia, it was making sure that we said, you know, it's the right thing to do. And it's just not fair that if you're going to work, paying your taxes, being a a member of society in our country, why why can't I marry the person I love like someone else can marry the person that, I, that they love? It just, just isn't right. And we should be all able to experience the love and happiness that comes with being recognised and celebrating our, the love for our, that special person in our lives. So what happens when the argument back to you um, in the marriage equality is a really good example is, is so implausible to you? What do you do in those circumstances? The no side spent the entire campaign going down rabbit holes. And, you know, this isn't about marriage equality. This is actually about, I remember the first ad they ran, it's about my, my boy's going to go to school wearing a dress. It's though the, you know, the sky's going to fall in if a little boy wears it, which is absurd anyway. But it's obviously also not what marriage equality is about. So we worked really hard to campaign in a positive way, that was also important, but also 
framing the debate and running our campaign on our terms. So you don't have to go down the rabbit hole. And we fiercely resisted going down the rabbit hole. So you just won't engage no, in that just conversation? Engage. But what about, the, what about the argument is just the way it is? Like, this is just the way it is. Man is supposed to marry a woman. What, do you, what, does, this, <laughs> what does a person like say, you well, say I, in that situation? Well, it's just the way it is that I am attracted to women and the woman that I love is a woman. So what do you say to that? I guess my question is more, less about, less about how you manage the content of the argument, but more about how you manage your emotion, yeah. your presence. Because the thing about you is that you are so, so sensible and considered, and I can't imagine you ever kind of riling to the, you know, to the to the bait as such. Yeah, oh, and we we had a sort of mantra of you campaign with the same respect and dignity that you were seeking. So we didn't rise to the bait. We didn't get down in the gutter. We, you know, whatever other metaphors we want to use, but we. We played fair and we ran the campaign in a way that was bringing Australia together, that was positive, that was uniting us around shared values um, of equality and fairness. At the end of the day, the no side could run their horrible campaign that was trying to stigmatise our community and scaremonger and, you know, what happened after marriage equality legislation passed. Like, we didn't have dildos rain from the sky or... Not that um, I saw. Not that we saw. And I live in King's Cross. (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't have, you know, all of these bizarre predictions obviously didn't come true. But what was interesting, though, is that because they made their campaign for no about all these other things, when we won, we could say, well, you know, you put all of those arguments and Australians still voted yes. And that's actually profoundly affirming not just on this issue, but more broadly, they stood up for our communities. And it's meant that ever since then, I've walked into a room with a politician knowing that I've got 62% of Australia behind me. And that's been so, you know, pivotal. And when we then stared down the religious discrimination bill, we had the same wonderful allies that stood up for marriage equality and the coalition of corporates and community groups like future women standing with us to say, no, actually, that's not what Australia's about. The point you made about winning hearts and minds in in this particular issue versus if you're running a court case, couldn't help but thinking about the gender debate in that context, because I think the argument that I use most is that the business case for putting yeah. women into leadership positions, and because the business case is is obvious and it's proven and the research is done over and over again that businesses across the world perform better if they've got gender equal leadership teams. But I'm not sure I'm winning that debate, you know, sometimes. Like, I really don't know that that lands. It's a very masculine way of thinking about it. Like, mm-hmm. just put the business case for putting yeah. more women into leadership positions. So I feel like, you, you know, like actually pointing out that here's a woman and I do think this works, here's a woman with two degrees and as an expert in her field, she doesn't feel like she can contribute to your organisation because your organisation um, is close to her thinking because she's not welcome. It's probably a... Yeah, I think that's powerful. Or saying, how would you feel if your daughter, you know, applied for all these jobs and her male colleague was given the job and paid more and... Well, as you know, Anna, we try not to use daughters (laughs) or wives... (laughs) <laughs> because because it works almost too well. <laughs> and you sort of go, 
Ah, uh, yes. I know, it's, there's a rule for daughters and wives, but mm-hmm. not for the rest of us. Anyway, I Even digress. Yeah. I digress. Um, do you have a superpower? I'd like to think that a large part of the success that I've been a part of, obviously always in teams and with others, but a lot of it is down to persistence and not giving up and playing the long game and recognising that change is incremental. You're not going to get everything all at once, but one success or movement forward builds on another. And even if there are setbacks, you do have to play the long game. And and slowly but surely over the last, for, for LGBTIQ plus communities, I feel like I've been part of a huge wave of change. If you look at, you know, however many years ago it was marriage equality support was at 30%. It took 10 years to turn that around to be majority support and then 70%, I think one of the highest polls was. And that's just the product of, you know, so many conversations, so many people standing up in their communities and coming out in the workplace and all of that social change, that fabric is woven over time. So I think persistence is one of mine, but also, and patience I think is linked to that, also just being calm. You know, people often say to me, you know, you're just so calm all the time, even when the proverbial's hitting the fan. And I think I still remember at the start of the marriage campaign when we had the postal survey was, we didn't know it was coming. You know, I don't know if you remember, we had the idea of an elect, the electoral commission running it. And then, you know, in the end it was the ABS and we joked, oh, what's next? The Bureau of Meteorology is going to test the temperature on the marriage equality. Um, so we, we had this bizarre process. And then I was like, oh my goodness, we're going to have a challenge in the high court and we have to gear up. You know, we still weren't ready, but we hired Tim Gartrell as our political director and he's now Albo's chief of staff. And I still remember him saying, he was just had this incredible sort of wisdom and calmness and it was so reassuring for me. And he'd just come out with these, everyone's going to panic don't worry, you know, and we just stay the course. It's always setting goals, setting objectives and staying the course. And then the other bit of advice he gave was everyone is going to come to you and have ideas about strategy and, you know, everyone becomes a campaigning expert. We saw it again with The Voice, like, oh, they're doing this wrong, they're doing that wrong. And you just have to focus on playing, running your campaign and focus on the goal and how you're going to achieve it and recognise there's going to be people coming at you well-intentioned with offers of support, advice. But really, you have to set up your team well. You need good structures for the campaign. You need good roles and responsibilities, clear roles and responsibilities. And just like anything, just run it efficiently and effectively. So I asked you before about how you handle um, a nonsensical argument and in many cases for you, probably offensive argument. Mm. You know, they're just, just offensive that you yeah, have to put up with. And, a few of those. and you've you've yeah, I'm sure you have. And you approach it with your calm. And you've talked about your patience being what's been needed in this space. Has it ever been to your detriment that you're calm and patient and rational and reasonable and you can see the long game? But I'm sure you've had many people around you who found the pace of change incredibly frustrating Mm. and potentially your approach to change frustrating. Yeah, I think they're the most difficult moments, particularly with when it's your own community and you're coming together as a movement and there's people that are frustrated, that are angry and understandably so when you've got politicians that don't understand that seem to be 
you know, finding ways to continue to keep you down and deprived of your rights. And even engage, like I've been criticised for even engaging with the Liberal Party. But to me, that's been a huge part of the success has been making sure that you build credibility and trust with all political parties, maybe not One Nation. Um, but every, we deal with everyone and we, you become a trusted advisor, an advocate. You know, politicians know that you'll call them out and that's your job, but they know that you've got integrity and if you need to, keep their trust and confidence, but also that you'll hold them to account. And you build up that credibility and, and those relationships over time. I'm so careful and it's been really big part of, you know, the work that we do at Equality Australia. We, we want it to have, you know, legal policy work that's viewed as robust and reliable. We never overstate the law or the impact of the law because you're only as strong as your weakest sort of factual claim. And as soon as you lose that credibility, as soon as someone pokes a hole in your argument and says, well, you said this actually didn't happen five years ago, did it? I mean, we all know how politics works, but, you know, that that is so important to strive to hang on to that trust and credibility. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice in whatever you do. But for a young activist who's listening mm. to this podcast... Talk to me a little bit more about walking into the offices of um, conservative politicians because, yeah, I can imagine there would be plenty of criticism around doing that. So talk to me about how you, what your experience has been and how you have approached those calls and meetings. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is our movement is made up of so many different parts and it's really important that we have people out there protesting loudly that probably would never walk into a Liberal Party politician's, you know, office and we need every single part of our movement to play their role. And, you know, I've been out on the streets protesting as well. It's just, you know, I, I will deal with the government and also the opposition. That's an important role for, for our organisation to play. It doesn't mean that you, I mean, you, you're accountable to your community at the end of the day. So I walk in saying, I'm representing this organisation. I will need to go back and tell my community what you're saying about this issue. So it's not the idea of sort of cloak and dagger conversations, but it's it's really very careful, careful conversations. And for example, with more conservative politicians, it's going back to the theme of the conversation. It's putting the argument in terms that they understand. So it's thinking about what are they thinking about their their pre-selectors who might be more religiously conservative, or what am I going to say to those? Or you know, how's this going to help me with my electorate? And just thinking about the issue and the conversation from their perspective and in terms that hopefully are going to appeal to them. And, and broadly, how's that gone? Um, in the most part, well. I think it was a real challenge with the religious discrimination bill, but we in the end had a whole a group of moderate parliamentarians stand up for our community, specifically for trans kids it was in the end in religious schools, which was such a wonderful thing to see. And, and were you in the... In the middle of that? Yeah, with I was Archer. Yeah. in Parliament at 5am. You know, we were up all night having conversations with all of these different parts, you know, different people in the building on all, all sides, that tech, you know, WhatsApp messages and frenetic communications and then watching and waiting and procedural confusion um, at different moments. But then when to see those MPs cross the floor and take that stand was just incredible. And then we... You know, oh gosh, we're going to have to do a, 
a media release and we have to communicate to our community, the people that we're working with and for, well, what's actually happened here? Because Canberra is a complicated, confusing place and that's a big responsibility that we have is translating what's happening in the political sphere to our supporters and community members so that they can understand what what's actually going on. I'm, I'm going to get sidetracked again, but um, did you ever get near Scott Morrison on that issue? Uh, him personally? Yeah. I did, no, you, I, did you ever get to speak to him about no. what it meant to trans kids? No. I met with his office numerous times and loads of conversations with, with different staff in his office, but I really would have liked Scott Morrison to actually sit down. Maybe he has already, but um, sit down with a trans person, a young person or a an older trans person that also is maybe of the same faith as, as him, who he can um, speak to and actually hopefully have some connection with about their lived experience. You've been in the advocacy space for much of your career. I'm intrigued to, to know, you know, what a bad day looks like. When you're tired and frustrated and you've got people telling you, Anna, you're doing it the wrong way, you should be doing it faster or better, how do you manage, I guess, the, I guess the highs and lows of what you yeah. do? So what I've discovered in this time as um, running an organisation that's, you know, for community, what I found is that the biggest pressure on me but also my team is actually, it's not from the Scott Morrisons or the Christian Lobby or the people out there that are actually, you know, sending the missiles in. You feel most um, sort of churned up and distressed when you feel like you're letting down your own community, the people that you're in there trying to help. So that's been a big learning for me and I actually have in place now clinical supervision for the team. Actually, these two lovely older lesbians who are actually a couple and they, they're, you know, they're professional psychological counsellors. We debrief as a team and it's, it's often the, look, I feel like I let this person down or maybe, you know, we, we were being criticised by this group because we did this, but actually it was for this reason and you know, people really take it personally. And so it's sharing those experiences, the stresses of the job, and also having allies as well that for these two wonderful working mums who are straight on my team and they're just absolute powerhouses when it comes to media. And it means that my, like my trans team members, for instance, aren't bearing the brunt of reading all the rubbish and really awful um, material that's you know, sort of coming at them um, from social media, from traditional media. So there's some of the protective factors is that I've learned that I can actually bring into my workplace. But for me, it's, yeah, looking after myself. I went actually on a health retreat this year. Well done. Um, and <laughs> don't to find it. <laughs> don't evangelise about it. But it was actually wonderful. Just yeah. such a great reset. Yep. I've, I, I'm the same. I've done that too. And I always feel a bit uncomfortable mentioning it. And then I'm like, oh my God, it was actually the it best thing ever. Really good. Mm. And I know it's like the daggiest holiday ever. I was by <laughs> the pool with a green smoothie, not a cocktail, <laughs> but it was excellent. And just spending that time decompressing, digital de- detox as much as possible and um, looking after yourself. And I went, actually went with my twin sister, who's a mother of three young kids, and she, just for her in particular, if you're a parent getting away and going, oh, I've just got this time to myself. Um, you do need the space to think, particularly when you're on the front line of some mm. big policy issues. How would you describe your leadership style? Uh, for me, 
So I was listening to the start of your podcast yes. um, the other day and the rest of it, but I yes. found the start interesting when you were talking about this series and no form. And I really, it really spoke to me because yeah. I too have never had any formal. It's like I've been so busy doing the doing the campaigning that it creeps up on you. Yeah, my professional mm. development sort of investment in that hasn't been probably what it should. So I haven't done any formal training, but I think I would describe myself as you know very caring and empathetic leader, very much you know, try and lead by example. So I do, I, I'm not one of those, you know, I used to work at a big law firm. If you're a junior lawyer, you might be there at night, long after the partners have gone home, slaving away. And not, I'm often slaving away, but I don't expect my team to do anything that I wouldn't do. And having, knowing and seeing the impact of campaigning, I really don't want people to feel like they have to be superheroes or martyrs. I really want our team to be looking after themselves and each other and having that caring, uh, supportive culture in the organisation. So that's something I've worked really hard at. And my final question for you today is, on behalf of anyone who's listening to this and admires your work and would like to follow in your footsteps, what advice have you got? Get involved. I think there's nothing that should be holding you back from making a stand for a cause or a community that you believe in. And it's, there's nothing, I think, more rewarding and empowering than um, being politically active. You know, come and get involved in Equality Australia. You, allies, members of the community, members of LG, like the LGBTQ plus communities. You can donate. I wouldn't be doing my job if I... No. Um, we rely on... You nearly forgot, though. That's <laughs> <laughs> the last question. We rely on philanthropic support to power our work and we're fiercely independent of, you know, the corporate and government dollar. Uh, so that's the vast majority of our income. I think being a not-for-profit CEO is often a pretty tough gig because people assume you've got the resources sometimes of a corporate that you've got all the infrastructure to support sort of attending high-level meetings and you know, you've got an EA and all of the other things that come with often being a CEO in a corporate environment. But yeah, not-for-profit CEO leadership is <laughs> a very different experience and you're, yeah, you're literally doing, you're the HR department. People say, send this to your finance department or HR department. It's like, that's me. Yep, I understand. <laughs> but it was, I can sure I can relate to. But that's a, another thing I've really focused on is I don't want my team to feel like they they shouldn't have that sort of support, that sort of operational support. So it's something I, I have built up over time and it's hopefully helping me be more sustainable with, with more balance in my life as well. That was my second to last question. I want to just ask one final question. What's on the horizon, do you think? Like, what, what fights do you see on the horizon? How long have you got? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, you know, you, they do just keep I bubbling know, up, right? I know, So there's obviously this huge, I would say, is it backlash or is it just an emboldening of the far right? Um, and they're picking up, particularly attracting the tr trans community. We saw neo-Nazis on the steps of the Victorian Parliament last year, shocking scenes, which I think most Australians was a really awful moment. So we're, we're pushing back against those sorts of elements in our community. The vast majority of Australians, I firmly believe, support, like I was saying, equality, fairness, compassion, people, just letting people live and let live. So pushing back against those sorts of forces, but also continuing to move forward, in, particularly in this religious space, and really with these political leaders that are making commitments to ban conversion therapy, sort of profoundly damaging practices, making sure that nowhere in Australia 
can any young person or, or any adult for that matter be subjected to these sorts of damaging practices? And, and then if you're going to school, if you're going to work in a religious organisation, you should just be able to be who you are and not suffer any harm or discrimination simply because you're trans or gay or bisexual or indeed a single mother or an unmarried woman. No, Brown, thank you for joining me today and for all the work that you do. Thanks, Helen. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin, series producer is Holly Mitchell, and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 